This episode is sponsored by Buy Texas Hemp. To source wholesale hemp from Texas farmers, visit buytexashemp.org. Texas, and welcome to In the Field. I'm your host, Zachary Maxwell, president of Texas Hemp Growers, the association representing the greatest group of growers in the greatest state of the union. And for the next hour, we're going to explore the world of hemp. I'll be joined this episode by genetics icon, Bodie Urban, president of High Grade Hemp Steed. We'll talk about his extensive time in the industry and his motivation behind some of the most recognizable strains in the, on the market today, such as cherry wine, berry blossom, and Matterhorn. We'll also talk about where he sees the genetics industry going as big agriculture producers begin to adopt hemp. I want to recognize the sponsor of today's episode, Buy Texas Hemp. This is a movement by Texas hemp growers to identify buyers of hemp. It's pretty easy, right? Buy Texas hemp. We have farmers all across the state of Texas that this year are going to be growing quality hemp flour and biomass. And if you are an interested buyer of these things, we want you to visit buytexashemp.org right now and you fill out that form and I'm going to personally call you and we're going to talk about hooking you up here with Texas farmers who are going to be able to supply you. And when you do that, by the way, you get to advertise on your products that your products are made by Texas farmers. That's pretty damn cool if you ask me. I also want to recognize another person, which is Sam. Sam Luquez Martin, I believe I said that right, and I'm sure he'll correct me later if I didn't, but I want to recognize him because today we're broadcasting from a slightly different location. I am out here in Cleveland, actually where there is a retail store called Happy Hippie House. And this is a CBD retail flower and smoke shop here in Texas. They actually advertise themselves as a cannabis dispensary, which I think is great. Really breaking those molds there. And I want to thank Happy Hippie House for having us today uh, to do this show. And we're going to bring Sam on later to talk with us a little bit about the market and where he sees things going with smokable flour as the state is barreling down on the concept of banning it. But before we can get there, first, let's talk about some news. So we're seeing all across Texas right now these different processing and manufacturing plants that are preparing to come online. And I want to talk about some of these, some of these processors that we're actually seeing. A lot of the focus has been on Panda Biotech, which if you've uh, tuned in the last two episodes, then you've heard us talk about Panda Biotech a lot. And of course, you can go and find old episodes of In the Field on Apple, uh, Google, and other podcasting services if you missed that. But we have information here that has recently come out from news as well as just through our network about other processors that are supposedly coming online. 
And one of the big ones that uh, seemed to take a lot of attention this week came out of the Lubbock area where it was announced that a group called Delta Ag is going to be building a drying and separation facility in Slayton. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It could be Slatton, Slayton. But they're building a separation and drying facility there. And this was in the news earlier this week, or earlier last week, I should say. And the person behind that is a guy named Chris Bednars. According to the article, he's a 26-year farmer uh, up there in the High Plains area. And he is leading this effort to build a processing facility that, according to the report, they are going to potentially be processing up to 1,000 acres uh, this year. Uh, that report says that there are uh, supposedly up to a thousand acres that have been contracted in some of the area counties, at least three of the counties in that area, um, for uh, hemp biomass. And I believe maybe they may even be trying some seed, some hemp seed processing as well. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds since most growers that are out there right now are starting small. And so I'm not sure if that thousand acres is all together or if that is uh, broken up. I had somebody suggest to me that it, that it is broken up. Um, but uh, obviously, uh, you know, we don't, we don't quite know just yet. But they are putting up an operation over there. And, uh, uh, and it should be exciting to see how that goes. They say it's going to be a turnkey operation where they're providing genetics, uh, harvesting services, and processing services. And so um, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out in the High Plains area. But before we move here any further with any more news, our guest is actually here with us. And I'm really excited today to welcome... Uh, to our show this guest uh, uh, because this is somebody who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, uh, every farm that I visited up in Colorado or pretty much every farm that I visited up in Colorado was growing on their uh, farms one of these strains, either cherry wine or berry blossom. And these are strains that are by high-grade hemp seed. And so I'm incredibly honored today to welcome to our program, Bodie Urban. He's the president of one of the largest hemp seed companies in the world. And he is the geneticist, the name behind those strains like cherry wine, berry blossom, and Chardonnay. And I'm excited to have him on the program today. Bodie, can you hear me? Yes, sir. How you guys doing? Very good. Very good. Well, thank you for being on the show here. I know you're incredibly busy with everything going on in the market right now. Uh, let's just jump right in there and talk about what you guys are up to this year. Tell me about the volume that you guys are producing and um, where are you seeing the most activity in the hemp industry as far as the United States right now? Good question. You know, it's kind of in all directions right now, in my opinion. I think the real obvious trend and pivot is towards the CBG type four market. Uh, but really, my two cents are with that pivot that the CBD farmers and those that can diversify and kind of roll the roll the dice more or less with what we know as a supply chain issue on the on the CBD biomass side, at least. I do feel personally that those that can afford to do that will see the rewards. So 
you know, there is always the, the true value in diversification, but we do feel that it's going to pick up with certain regulations that will allow this, this biomass overproduction to make sense. And, and, you know, we're seeing and hearing a lot right now with this whole coronavirus thing, the possibility that retailers are down on their business and that there may be bottlenecks in the industry right now. Do you see the biomass bottleneck that we're, we're seeing where there's, where may, there's maybe more supply than demand? Do you see that untangling this year? Great question again. You know, I'd, I'd love to believe, especially with, you know, the amount of farmers we have in the land that prefer to grow this crop, you know, the back-end solutions forming themselves as quick as possible. To me, I do feel this this market is really going to see the upside of a lot of international distribution to begin with a lot of the regulation uh, kind of limiting some of the distribution domestically. So it's kind of a yes and no in my eyes right now where those who are sitting on big bulk may see an upside of international markets where, you know, domestic is more of a future play in my eyes today. And you mentioned those international markets, which come up quite frequently now. Uh, uh, are you guys doing a lot of international seed sales, I'm assuming? We are. More so, not, I guess, let me recorrect. It's more so on the certification and the proof cultivar kind of hopping through hoops right now, really making sure that our varietals are as tried and true to their standards as possible to make sure we're very transparent with the farmers. I mean, that way it just kind of eases the whole transaction from distribution with, you know, really according to their guidelines with certification, you know, ultimately trying to make sure our IP is protected in the process as well so that farmers can get true verified genetics rather than knockoffs from folks maybe just calling their seed names of varietals we've presented in the past. And what of that? Because when you look out there, you see all of these companies that are advertising some cherry wine out there, but it's, it's not your cherry wine. Can you explain that? Yeah. So ultimately, again, I, I come from the cannabis production market. Cherry wine was a type three varietal I had really put on the market, really geared for that smokable and smokable intention from a THC free product. So more or less was a varietal that was a freebie to market from an IP standpoint with an initial brand that I had, initially brought that, you know, cherry wine to market with that was always and has always been my, you know, personal baby and project that I've cared quite a bit about for both the smokable and botanical extraction market. But, you know, the goal has always been to continually improve varietals geared towards row crop production, you know, from HG. And what do you think it is about some of the varieties that you have come out with the cherry wine, the berry blossom, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of interest this year in the Matterhorn, but really the cherry wine, the berry blossom, because those are, those are kind of your babies there. I'm sure there, I know there's others, but what is it about those varieties that, that has made them so attractive to farmers? So I think our, our big advantage is the fact that a lot of our, you know, R and D specialists and a lot of my team do come from that, what we consider boutique cannabis market. It's really easy for us to identify you know, a terpene-rich varietal that we then pair with certain markers and or analytical data. And so first and foremost, the bag appeal, terpene profiles are what we're looking for for a smokable product. And then when we get to the row crop, stabilization, zygosity, you know, the stabilization is really going to be the, the biggest point for certification and lines that can then be put in these institution hands for big field production. Um, but that that really was the big difference that cherry wine, berry blossom, these lines you mentioned made on the on the market in my eyes was, you know, where most hemp was a 
grain or fiber type prior, this really introduced a you know a heavy resin producing terpene rich uh, flower to market. So pretty proud of that for sure. Well, we're seeing a lot of it on uh, Texas fields going into Texas fields this year and excited to see how that performs here in our diverse climate. You know, let's maybe talk a little bit about Bodie and, and your introduction to the industry. Can you kind of tell me what inspires you to move into hemp genetics? Well, first and foremost, I'm you know kind of just a farmer in general. You know, this, this time of year is generally when we're getting seeds in flats and or direct seeding. So to me, it's just part of my culture and lifestyle with you, know, you reap what you sow type of mindset. But, you know, from the R&D standpoint, it really is that exciting new benefit of having that new option, a new spice of life, which really gives us something interesting to dig into every every season to, you know, again, give farmers something new to monetize off of. Right, right. And so um, with HGH, y'all have your greenhouses there in Longmont, correct? Is that where y'all are at? You know, we're actually spread all over the nation at this point. I would say most of our R&D, you know, my in-house work is based out of Longmont between my in-house headquarters, which is, you know, supplemental indoor greenhouse as well, and quite a bit of field trialing each year with new lots I'm working on. But we do have strategic partners in each state that help us seed increase where demand is necessary for that specific region and or for a variety that may perform better in that territory. So, you know, we were very proud of the, you know, the, the trust and, and relationships we've built in farmers across the world at this point. Now, you had mentioned earlier um, something that I want to tap into, which was a uh, concern over the regulations that uh, are coming down on, on the whole entire industry uh, there in, in the United States anyway, in regards to the total THC limit. How has the total THC threshold changed your approach to hemp genetics? You know, the big, the big way it's changed my, you know, personal approach is just how most farmers talk to me about their concerns. So, you know, where Colorado has always been testing for total THC compliance, certain states like Oregon and Nevada have strictly only tested for THC for that verified state letter. And so it's, it's nothing that's really been a huge curveball in our world, but educating farmers that certain lines that might've been viable in those two states with the THCA in mind may not be a, you know, a good, good gamble to diversify acres with moving forward. I do understand that's not a huge effect this season, but lines like our berry blossom have proven to be farmed in all scenarios from both smokable and biomass production to be compliant in that, in that approach for a total T standpoint. And, and do you think that we're going to see farmers messing up this year because of that with maybe going hot in the field? I mean, when you look out there on the market, for example, you see guys that are promoting things of, oh, put our seed in the ground and you're going to be able to get a 17, a 20% CBD out of it, even though the paperwork. Uh, I, I don't really think those lines and those ratios specifically are realistic. With the lines I mentioned, specifically the berry blossom, we've isolated that phenotype and, and stabilized really that expression from a seed increase standpoint, really to capture that 10 to 12% CBD ratio that we found does keep that total T.3, you know, in reality from a, a true mature flower harvest. So, again, I don't want to make it sound like it's a guarantee by any means on either CBG, industrial, or CBD, but the due diligence has been done on our farmers and our farms to 
definitely, you know, say that it's viable for both approaches, you know, when harvested correctly. Great, great. So what is your opinion of, uh, you know, some of these seed companies, we see a lot of seed companies that seem to kind of just pop up in the industry. You guys have been around since y'all came around 2014. Is that correct? Or yeah, so I've been actually breeding these lines since 2011, 2012. I initially released Cherry Wine with a different brand in 2015, but you know my background prior to that has always been commercial cannabis and type two types, you know, type one breeding and production. So cannabis has always been a part of my plant. We do see these new brands popping up with knockoff imitations. And I think that's, again, where the farmers need to do their diligence to educate themselves on the risks they're making with their you know, initial investment that ultimately determines the value of their biomass at the end of the day. And without a tried and true stamp like our brain brings with our planting, it's, it's you know, a difficult, difficult monetization model. As somebody that's, that's fairly new in the industry, and if you hear that loud crack behind me, that is the uh, sound of a bug zapper. Uh, the, uh, uh, but one of the things that, that was kind of new to me in the industry visiting some of these grows is how they will kind of stage these um, uh, smaller, maybe like an inside grow where they are selecting phenotypes. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? process if it, 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 what do we look for when we talk about you know uh, selecting desirable traits when we're trying to breed great questions i mean indoors especially depending on what type of light bulb which determines the spectrum that you're introducing to these plants once they start producing resin you're going to determine a lot of the you know ratios that ultimately will present themselves under the sun and some of the bulbs don't really filter the uvb quite the same way so you know some of that is smoke and mirrors from coas done indoors where we like to do most of our trialing and selection work outside where again the data is going to be exactly what the farmer experiences when placed in ideal scenarios so our seed increases are done indoors where we can mitigate contamination from a pollination standpoint but our trialing and selection work is done where we can truly imitate and you know try to introduce that biomimicry that would really give us a good you know idea of what our lines are doing, where they need improvement, what's going on in that population. Yeah, and I and I remember I don't remember who it was that was telling me, but they were describing their process of actually uh, getting the plants to hermaphrodite, how they would uh, take them through this process of overstressing them in order to kind of rogue out, I guess, bad plants during that process. Have you ever experimented or seen anything like that? Yeah, there's that's a debatable conversation. Absolutely, you know, stress is a big factor, especially when these plants really do need to perform in certain heat and stress conditions but to me it really comes down to that genetic sequence ultimately at the end of the day so i, w I would not 100 percent agree with stress being a, a big factor especially if they're they're alluding to create pollen that way speaking of pollen we've got folks that are um very heavily promoting the idea that feminized seed like what HGH produces there will become a thing of the past as big agriculture adopts uh, industrial, you know, say dual purpose uh, crops. And uh, so you have guys out there that say, why would, a, why would a farmer need to spend, you know, thousands of dollars an acre on their plant materials when they could just buy, you know, a, a, you know, a $20 bag, a $100 bag of industrial seed? 
in the long run of this industry, could you see something like that happening? Or where does feminized seed exist in the world of big ag? I see it happening already where I kind of classified in three different markets. To me, the smokable should be in what has become a very relative term of what's deemed smokable. In my eyes, should be an indoor and or greenhouse strictly, you know, production for that short up post harvested maybe and or trimmed product. The feminized seed market is to me geared for, you know, biomass production that needs to be sent to Amelia seedless from both A, the yield standpoint of the flower itself from resin production, as well as cannabinoid potency. Whereas when those flowers are pollinated, typically those, you know, COAs from a homogenized biomass standpoint are going to test lower. So, you know, the sterile lines in discussion, I don't, want, I don't want to get into that today, but to me, that's where feminized row crop will make a play in the future for biomass lots specifically. To me, standardizing the different grades of smokable will become a trend very quickly. And then tri-crops is what I would consider that third niche rather than dual, where you're A, still able to reap that shaft, that whether it's type 4, type 3 end product for extraction, but it's really just a byproduct at that point geared for more of a fiber or grain harvest. And HDA is actually already trialing and betting lines on that for certification this year. Okay, very cool. You heard it there from, from the guy himself. So, um, you know, one of the uh, uh, things that I saw come up last year, uh, and I'm kind of curious for your opinion about, is that uh, we saw Charlotte's Web get a patent on one of their strains. And I'm kind of curious, what's your opinion of that on patenting hemp strains? And could you guys see yourself doing something like that in the future? Absolutely. And, you know, talking to you know myself, I might be a biased opinion there where you know, a good majority of the market has taken some of my IP and rebranded it and or knocked off. Some give credit where it's due. So, you know, moving forward with the amount of investments and, and team we've grouped up with the talent we're now investing in, it's, it's definitely partial strategy, to say the least. We're never trying to be the bully to prevent improving or introducing something unique to, to the market. But you know, what I personally would like to prevent is, you know, my exact same seeds just being a plagiarized, rebranded with my exact pictures, um, you know, basically just knocked off without any integrity behind them. So we do have intentions to protect our new IP, which we'll definitely be proposing here in the next next year for planting with you know, several, new, several new planting options. Well, that's... And I mean, going to, to the Charlotte's Web IP, I mean... From their their standpoint, it might be more of a proceed value where I don't know that they actually stand in the market as a seed breeder, more as a delivery method. And so Charlotte, may she rest in peace, bless her soul, was a very integral part and piece to the trajectory this plant has made you know impact on the market in whole. So their branding and marketing is incredible, but I don't know what, I can't speak on their breeding work or seed stock. So one of the uh, things I heard was that uh, uh, maybe there's a large grow in the Panhandle High Plains area of your autoflower varieties. And I'm kind of wondering, uh, what is your opinion, you know, on using an autoflower at a larger scale versus a, um, say, a full-term varietal? To me, the autoflowers today are playing an amazing role as a bumper crop, especially for the folks who have scaled their acreage and really just need that logistical advantage to stagger their labor and or mechanized harvest approach. 
I will say that there is, in my opinion, some improvement to be done on the quality standpoint for both markets, smokable and extraction. We've been seeing average COAs between that 7 and 9% on most of the autoflower lines. So great bumper crop gives you that logistical 90-day harvest window that, you know, in certain scenarios may give you multiple planting options per year. But from a potency quality, you know, especially on the smokable side, there's, there's work to be done. Speaking of work to be done, what are your thoughts on uh, just we've we've heard a lot of challenges farmers face with uh, getting bad stand in the field when they try to uh, drill directly into the ground. Uh, and for this reason, you, you obviously are aware that a lot of farmers will do like a germination and transplant um, option there. So where does the genetics come into play where we start really getting a good solid seed that we can put into the ground and know it'll germinate? Great question. So, you know, I think that's really where our track record and our learning curve will you know, pay dividends from the farming standpoint. But outside of the quality control, you know, SOPs we put in place from cleaning, grading the seed itself, we now offer a priming and or coating of seeds specifically geared for that direct seeding approach, which we do ultimately advise specifically for those day neutral options uh, where you're going to get much more of a vigorous germ and just jump out the gates with any of the biologicals or NPKs we can coat the seed with. But generally the coating is for the standardization of the seed size itself for that precise planter. We um, hear a lot about monosim planters. Oh yeah. That's, that's I that's a good one. Sure. Yep, autos, you know, and it's debatable who you talk to. We actually like a higher population anywhere between 18,000 and 25,000 per acre. And again, being the bumper crop to us, it's really a, you know, a, a row crop line that we don't intend to, you know, deploy labor for or capital for labor or anything like that. It really just is to diversify our harvest timelines. And so we can, we can bet on row cropping and essentially just wind rowing and getting that through combine is, is how I intend to use that specific varietal for biomass production this season. Now, um, I was going to ask you, when you do kind of your own um, uh, compost teas, I'm sure that, that you've been, been involved in that, obviously, throughout your life. I'm curious, can you give us any tips out there as far as just creating a good compost tea to use? Man, so... You know, depending on the level of fertigation you're at and the scale with your nutrient delivery, you know, ideally you want to have a bacterial dominant tea and veg and a fungal dominant tea in bloom, which, you know, can be in, absorbed differently depending on how your actual nu nutrient delivery is set up. But to me, it really comes down to building the soil out the gates if you don't want to get into, you know, really being exact with inputs to your fertigation kit. So if you can really build a good soil out the gates, these seeds, especially with a taproot, are going to dig around and do what they need to do. And what about the the person that's needing to germinate and do, uh, you know, these in, say, transplanter uh, trays? Any tips there that you could share as far as uh, increasing that uh, that germination and uh, uh, you know ultimately stand rate with uh, trays? How how can we be more efficient in that? And, and what uh, would you recommend that? So I do like to use a Berger BM2 medium for my propagation in greenhouse and or hoop house. Uh, to me, the, the the real quality comes into a real uniform water schedule. And I'd like to shout out my buddy, Mikey, who used to run our 
our nurseries here there it really is just an ocd real patient standardized timeline between each flat so that uniform watering is being done unless you're under a boom sprayer which is you know generally a bit more scaled and far more ideal from a you know a standardized moisture content standpoint so that's that's really what it is you don't want to oversaturate you don't want to undersaturate you really just want to keep constant moisture in those flats and the other real big big variable and just starting flats is we do like to utilize the 35 percent shade cloth for those first two to three weeks of propagation at least one to two weeks of full hardened off full sun prior to field transplant but we tend to see more lush canopies at that approach as well that's awesome Last question here is um, we've heard obviously CBG is very popular right now. Uh, in fact, I've even heard that maybe in Colorado and Oregon, there's farms that are completely turning to CBG. But one of the concerns that I've heard is that there's people out there that say we just adopted CBD and the country, the, the public, the, the consumer just started learning is about CBD. Do you think that CBG is going to find as much reception in the marketplace as CBD has received? And do you think that that has been at all overhyped this year? I think there's been a lot of hype behind the compliance and the viability of really introducing this as a row crop to true big ag where we can hopefully in time get behind and get through any FDA hoops that will allow us to put this in major production for consumables, cosmetics, and any other delivery methods. So to me, those are the hoops we're facing. The CBG is going to be great for the smokable market this year due to those, you know, concerns and fears of compliance crossing state line and or international markets. Biomass this year to me, again, was a huge push to your point with CBD really making the big trend past few seasons with delivery methods, so-called pharmaceutical nutraceutical benefits. So to me, it really just is more education on all facets, you know, between consumers and and manufacturers i think it's it's there's still a role for everything at this point it's hard to say for me i'm i'm no fortune teller but definitely can tell you that cbg will have a long run here in smoking smoking products and if people wanted to learn more Bodhi, about your company and get a hold of some of your seeds how can they do that I think reaching out to me directly, there's a hotline number on our website, highgradehempseed.com, and I'm glad to go through any of your farm scenarios, questions, or concerns. Outside of that, I, you know, I encourage any farmers to do their due, their due diligence, excuse me, outside of our brand, our varietals and offerings we've introduced to market and farm now for years. You know, there's only one other brand in Oregon that comes to mind that I personally would put my investments in. So, you know, I just encourage farmers to do their homework. You heard it there highgradehempseed.com. If you want to learn more about their seed genetics and their company, Bodie, really appreciate your time today. I know it's super valuable and you guys are moving billions of seeds onto the market this year. And so I uh, don't want to hold you up from that any longer, but really appreciate you being on the show today. Hey, likewise, Zach. And again, any farmers that just want to kind of bat around some ideas with us, I'm glad to get on the phone and, and chop it up with you. So feel free to reach out. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Exactly. And that was Bodie Urban, president of High Grade Hemp Seed, the name behind such strains as Cherry Wine and Berry Blossom and Matterhorn, and a real honor to have him on the show today because he's hard to get, uh, but uh, super knowledgeable when we can get him, and just the fact that he was able to share about 30 minutes of, a, uh, of his time there with us 
uh, is very valuable. And I hope some of that information uh, came through for some folks out there. Next, I am joined by my special guest, Sam Luquez Martin, who is the owner of Happy Hippie House, which is where we are broadcasting right now. And I want to welcome him onto the show to do a small interview here at the end. How's it going, Sam? Hey, Zach. Great, man. Enjoying life. Awesome. Well, you know, just thanks for having us here today. Obviously, this whole industry right now is exploding and you're um, a retailer here on the front lines uh, experiencing, you know, the consumer demand. What are you seeing right now on the retail front on the flower and the CBD and all of that? So uh, as the first CBD store uh, dispensary in Texas opened 420 2018, um, I was met with a lot of uh, negative feedback from a lot of people that didn't understand what it was. They thought that I was selling marijuana or some other type of drug. Um, but as soon as people started coming around and I would share knowledge and they, would will, they were willing to try it, um, they noticed that they were getting some benefits from it. Um, a lot of people use it for anxiety, pain, uh, seizures, and sleeping disorders. Um, so in the last two years, it's really grown, especially the last year. Uh, obviously, as more stores popped up, um, you know, spreading, spreading the good word, so to speak, and, and people having access to high quality products, you have places that, you know, gas stations and things of that nature that don't necessarily focus on quality products. Um, the smokable flower, I started selling the day after the law changed, which was December 20th, 2018. I started selling it the 21st. Um, and that's really been a hit. Obviously, uh, as a user of other things in the past, uh, I personally switched completely to hemp uh, CBD products and especially the flower. Uh, I smoke it every night. Uh, great effect without some of the side effects that some people don't like of other things. Um, so quite enjoyable. It's kind of hard these days in a sense to stay ahead of the curve because so many people are selling it now that it's, um, you know, you got to stay relevant. And there's so, a lot of bunk out there probably on the market too. Right. So I hear that almost every week. Uh, some people will complain about um, my prices, even though I have a BOGO deal on all my flowers online and in-house um, quality. It's all about quality. And so it speaks for itself. A lot of people come in and say, hey, I tried it from the gas station uh, and, you know, I was not impressed. Uh, on the same note, some people will get turned off by it because they tried it and didn't like it or gave them a headache and they think it's all the same. Um, I try all of my products, especially the flower. Uh, I have farms that send me samples. I'm expecting um a half a pound or a half an ounce of samples right now from a farm doing um, strictly uh, indoors under artificial lights. Uh, I've been trying to get that, but it's really, it's been expensive, like 2,500 bucks a pound. And I just can't sell it at that rate. You know, it's about $4 a, a gram. It's just You're not. You're paying $2,500 a pound? No, that's what they wanted to that's charge what, me. That's for what they're wanting. Another farm. That so doesn't I, even... I think it was a middleman. Okay, involved. yeah, that's got to almost. I can't imagine right. anybody is is really doing that. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, and you know, one of the things that I kind of always um, uh, caught here at your place is how you actually advertise it as a cannabis dispensary. Absolutely, because it is cannabis, as uh, marijuana and hemp both are, but also mulberry tree and nettle leaf tree are related to the cannabis family. Um, I'm setting myself up for in the future, hopefully the very near future, where um, Texas will be all green. Uh, and so I didn't want to limit myself as being a hemp dispensary. 
Um, I do have a sign outside that says hemp dispensary because that's what I'm dealing with now, but I'm happy hippie house cannabis dispensary of Texas. Um, so in the future, I have the room, uh, obviously sometimes people ask me, but I can't, you know, get into that part of it yet. Right. Well, and you know what I, I tell people sometimes I don't even know if we'll see full legalization here in this state in our lifetime just because they don't seem to want to ever act unless it's a, a federal mandate right. you know kind of thing and so I, I tell people all the time that you know we may never see cannabis fully adopted in this state until it's decriminalized on, on a federal level and, and there is a uh, bill that i've heard about in uh, congress right now right so okay. is to legalize it and allow the atf to regulate it and tax yeah. it like they they would they well do that'll that'll die right there in the senate <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the one thing you know a lot of people don't even know that uh, i'm a republican and, and it's the one thing about our party that that just really drives me up a wall is is uh uh you have the the politicians that that don't even want to talk about it but if you look in the texas republican party platform it says in there the legalization of marijuana is part of their platform. And so um, I would love to get conversations going with some of our uh, elected officials, particularly Cornyn and Cruz, some of the, the, the slow to react type folks when it comes to that kind of stuff. But, you know, speaking of law and, and, and speaking of everything that, that may come down the pipeline, one thing that, that we are looking at right now is this potential smokable flower ban. Uh, and I say smokable flour, it's really smokable products is what the law says, but we are seeing the possibility that Department of State Health Services would come through and ban that. And my understanding is that's a pretty big part of your business, right? Absolutely. So um, state law, uh, I don't know if many people have read it, uh, but I have a copy in house. If anybody wants a copy, I'll run you a copy. Um, it specifically states smokable um, the manufacturing and the processing of smokable hemp in Texas is not allowed, according to state law, which is House Bill 1325. Uh, DHS is, uh, I believe, in my uh, meager opinion, overstepping their authority by trying to uh, sh straight out outlaw uh, the selling of smokable hemp products uh, in Texas. Uh, considering that you can still buy it online, you can still have it shipped to Texas, you can still drive around, you can still use it, you can still smoke it. So there's not a whole lot of point to it. I did hear through the grapevine that the Sheriff's Association of Texas is the one that pushed that through with DHS. Um, so they're trying to make it easier on themselves when encountering people that have cannabis to eliminate hemp being a possibility, which is just, uh, in my opinion, absurd because testing eventually will catch up where there'll be a test that they can have on the roadside to be able to test the actual content. T Texas A&M allegedly already has developed. Right. Like I heard Dallas as well. There was a university. Yeah, in they'll Dallas. get right on it. Uh, there's a company overseas in Europe uh, that's using it. That's been tested in Virginia and Florida uh, with some too many false positives uh, with the test. So, you know, obviously some fine tuning, but it doesn't seem like a legitimate reason to, to, to try to prohibit a, a product that's helping out so many people. And furthermore, if you can go buy cigarettes, you should be able to be able to buy hemp flour and smoke it. Um, it's or, a lot better than bets. cigarettes. Or hemp bats, right. Yeah. I sell those too. And people have quit smoking cigarettes with them. So um, why is that not a good thing? I mean, I just don't understand it. So you can obviously see that there's some bias and special interest behind um, DSHS trying to uh, block that. Uh, my attorney, which I spoke to regarding this, says that um, that's a problem for him. He doesn't see that as uh, them being able to have the authority to do that. So, um, you know, maybe a lawsuit, class action lawsuit like they did in Indiana is, is what's going to be needed. Um, so, yeah, I've been well, and I've, of course, I've been saying that myself is, uh, 
uh, that uh, it, it's looking like that's probably going to be the direction that, that we have to go. Uh, and so, you know, uh, uh, obviously it's, it's a big concern there, not just for the retailer, but for the farmer as well, because Absolutely. the farmer would probably much rather sell within the state rather than having to sell out of state. Somebody put it this way. They said uh, um, uh, it would be like telling a rancher that they can, uh, they can raise cattle, but they can't sell steak. Yeah, it's absurd. Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously there's a big connection there uh, for farmers to be able to actually just put this right here. But, but yeah, they are trying to do that. And, uh, and I think that some kind of legal uh, action will be necessary. Of course, they've got the state uh, legislature coming up here next year. And, and I hope that we're going to be able to get in there and, and, and possibly make some change. In fact, we, we need to make changes to the law because there are certain areas of that law right now that actually prevent other parts of the industry we right. can't we can't keep clones right. for example we couldn't keep a mother plant beyond six months based on how the the laws are written and so uh yeah there's some major concerns there but um you know let's move here real fast to um kind of the consumer um uh, feedback that you receive which is i mean you've got a lot of flour here what strains do you find you move the most of um so they all sell uh Everybody uh, processes CBD differently. So that's why everybody has different preference on how to take it, what dosage works for them. Uh, but with the flour, with the terpenes and the flavonoids, uh, everybody processes it different. So Myrcene, for instance, uh, shows great promises, uh, pr promise as a sleeping aid. Uh, some people might smoke high Myrcene flour and not get that sedative effect. Um, not so much like indica strain of marijuana, but a super relaxing kind of chill feeling. Um, but uh, if I had to pick two, I would say that my number one seller for the last couple months have been OG Kush. Um, and my Northern Lights, which is my CBG flower that I've had for um, probably six to eight months now. It's 22% CBG. So um, that's what kind of sets me apart from a lot of places is high CBD content. Um, OG Kush is actually one of the lowest. Uh, CBD is 17%, but total cannabinoids is touching 20. Um, so now some of those though are not total THC compliant, are they? Yes. So federal law, absolutely. Federal law uh, under the supremacy clause of the Constitution, uh, every state has to abide. So uh, federal law states that the only regulated THC component is THC delta nine. So as long as the THC Delta 9 or 0.3% or less, it's legal uh, federally, thus statewide. Um, furthermore, state law, House Bill 1325 states that no city, jurisdiction, municipality can make any rules, statutes, or laws against them that violate state or federal law. Uh, so it's pretty clear to me that my products are right, uh, but, legal. But when you look at the USDA's rules, they took that and turned it into total THC right THCA and THC or delta 9 and so you're saying that that even they overstepped their boundaries absolutely. And, and that maybe another lawsuit is in order absolutely I think a lawsuit for the USDA is in order as well um, they suspended some of their rules uh, like having to uh, test at DEA facilities um, and the um, destruction protocol for if your flower tests hot Instead of having to pay for somebody to destroy it, you can till it into the ground. You can do a couple other things. But uh, yeah, so they're trying to take um, 
uh, TACA and convert it with heat uh, in order to regulate it and to be able to control it, which I think is, uh, is not what the federal law intended at all. In that case, with that being said, my, my flower currently is still grandfathered in. So I buy from uh, farms all across the United States of America. Uh, they're obviously operating under those same guidelines. So um, that flower is still grandfathered in until all that takes effect and until someone sues them, I guess. Absolutely. I well, was the first in here. I might be the first in that regard as well. Tell you what, people can get sweaty palms when you tar start talking about lawsuits. So, uh, but, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, there, there has to be uh, a level of, of challenge uh, to this to make sure that, that our farmers and our retailers like yourself are protected and, and capable of maximizing the value of this plant. Uh, that's what we want. We want the growers to make the most amount of money and flour has, has been shown as one of those things that a small first-time grower could potentially get into and make right. a neat little profit from. Right. You know, so um, Sam, if people wanted to learn more about your company and order your products, how would they find that? So they can come to me uh, outside of Cleveland. I'm at 21445 Highway 105, Cleveland, Texas, 77328. Uh, happy Hippie House, that's hippie with a Y, house, H-A-U-S dot com, or Happy Hippie House on Facebook, Instagram, Google, message me, call me, text me. I'm always answering messages and texts and calls. Awesome. And you have this really, really chill cat here. That's my Layla. Layla. See, you're just petting on her, loving up on her. A lot of people know Layla, have met Layla. Um, so there's a lot of people that are going to know exactly who you're talking about. She's a, she's adorable though. She's my know. little store cat. Store cat. Absolutely. Well, Sam, thanks for being on the show with us today. Certainly appreciate you joining us here on in the field. And again, if you want to learn more about happy hippie house, make sure you visit them online at happy hippie house. That's H A U S dot com where you'll find Sam and his products as well. And so that pretty much concludes our program for the evening. I want to uh, uh, inform you that next week we're going to have on our show Morris Beagle. He's the president and founder of the NoCo Hemp Festival in Colorado. Big, big event, tracks tens of thousands of people and vendors to it. And I'm incredibly excited to have him on the show. He also is the founder behind the Let's Talk Hemp podcast. And so he's going to join us next Tuesday to talk about his experience and some of the eco-friendly products that he's been producing with hemp. We'll start that episode promptly at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time next Tuesday, May 12th. And I hope you'll join me there so that we don't miss it. And of course, here we are at the end of our episode. And I want to thank you for tuning in to In the Field. You can find episodes of In the Field on our website at hemptx.org. Subscribe to our show on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. You can also become a Texas Hemp Growers member through our website. For just $79 a year, gain access to an unmatched support team and join almost 200 growers who have come together in just six months. This has been your host, Zachary Maxwell, and until next time, happy hemping, y'all. This episode is sponsored by Buy Texas Hemp. To source wholesale hemp from Texas farmers, visit buytexashemp.org.